listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, good morning, Park Springs family. Uh, it's a joy uh, to be with you here this morning. Uh, something special uh, for you guys this morning is you get a double introduction uh, to the message. I know that this is probably your most excited you've been all week. Um, but I, I got to set up the series for you, and then I need to set up the passage a little bit so that as we, we enter into the reality of these stories, we're, we're entering in with maybe a more robust view of what the scriptures are teaching. So I will invite you to open your Bibles or uh, open your digital Bibles to, to Luke chapter 5, which is where we're going to be camping out. But let me take you through the journey as we start this new series together. And you, you picked a great Sunday to be here. If you're our guest, we're so grateful that you're here this morning. If you're a, uh, um, an old soul who's been here for a long time, I'm really excited. We've been really excited about this series. And let me tell you why. About seven months ago, we as a leadership team have just started talking about the reality of how worship and preaching are integrated in our life. And often I think sometimes we think about just the normal compartmentalized reality of even how we run Sunday mornings is this is what we'd say, right? We, we sing a song in preparation for getting down to the real stuff, which is the opening of the word and the preaching of the word. And then we sing a song of response and then we'll dismiss and pray and so on and so forth. But we have these kind of time slots or categories or compartmentalized reality of how we worship. And we've come to anticipate those things. But one of the things that we really wanted to see God do and have been praying about is that the, the Lord would, would integrate the reality of, of how he instructs and moves his people into deeper, more intimate relationships with him. And one of the things that tended to, to be missing, I think, is so often as we, we sing songs, we have songs that we like and songs we don't like. And there are times where we feel like, well, that worship song didn't really hit my heart or that message didn't really touch me in a very specific way. And so we, we kind of leave um, unchanged, if you will. And so the thought was with such an unbelievably talented worship team, is there a way that we could bring those things together in such a way that both the preaching of the word and the worship of that word and the worship of God himself would be so united that it just embeds itself, the truths of the scriptures embed themselves deeper into our lives that begin to allow us this sort of rhythm and sort of cascade into a, a deeper longing for more and more of Christ. So for the last seven months, we've been preparing this series to us to walk through together as a body. And here's what we've done. It didn't take me seven months to write this sermon, just so you know. That would be awesome. It'd be like an hour and a half long or whatever. It's not that long. So, uh, but I will say that what we've done is we, we got the team, the worship team together, and people that were interested in songwriting and thinking about different places in the scriptures where there's individuals that encountered Jesus and left changed. What was it about that encounter that was so life-altering that allowed their life to not only functionally be different, but their status, their connection, their intimacy, their entire ambiance of who they are as an individual was functionally different after 
they met Christ. And so we've chosen five encounters of those who have met Jesus and left changed. And in the process of those things, these stories will be infinitely familiar to you because one, I hope they're infinitely, because I've preached a few of them before already, and I promise I won't recycle those sermons, but we, we've, we've walked through, and, and you have heard messages on these passages before, but here's what we've done. As a worship team, we've gotten together, and at the end of every message and every story, we've written a specific song, a worship song, about that encounter. This morning, you'll be introduced to a song called, Who Is This Man?, based on this text. And so for the last seven months, we've been writing collectively together as a team. We've been praying. We've been producing. The team has done just an unbelievably amazing job because what we would deeply desire is that the rhythm and the truth of God's word would resonate and reverberate in every corner of your soul. From just the reading of the scriptures to the singing of the scriptures to the preaching of the scriptures, the desire ultimately is to anchor our lives in the reality that as we walk through these stories about people who've been changed by Jesus, we would come away with the very same reality. You have too. Your story, if you've met Jesus and responded in faith, your, your life is fundamentally different because of that encounter with Christ. And so the desire is to think about ways in which the scriptures are so integrated and embedded in our hearts that our lives look different and we're reminded of the consistent things that the Lord has done and is doing in the midst of our lives. Now, I will say there's a bit of a risk in that because often when we think about the places where Jesus has encountered us, we're thinking about those moments where there has been change, there's been growth, God has done great things, but often it also comes on the heels of hanging on to sin and struggle. We look at Jesus, but we also have to look at the reality of what's going on inside. Some of those places that we really don't want Jesus to intrude. We would rather remain or have him remain uninvited to those spaces in our heart where we'd be nurturing some emotional wounds or some aspects of bitterness or some levels of dysfunction in all of our own hearts where we're like, I want to be changed by Jesus up to a point. <laughs> but the joy of what the scriptures do is it forces us to realize that God doesn't fit in a box. We don't get to put boundaries on what the Lord can do. And so as we walk through this series, literally we are expending every resource we have to allow the truth of God to rest on your heart, both through the preaching of the word and through the worship of that same word. So I'm thrilled with where the Lord is taking us. And I'm totally jazzed up and excited about what we collectively as a team have put together because I think it's honoring to God. And so the desire is not that there would be any accolades from the people who put time in writing these songs. All glory goes to Christ. And he's worked and done such deep work in us as we walk through these things. Introduction number one. Introduction number two, as we move to Luke chapter five, we're gonna encounter a story that's typically known as the paralytic. 
And if you've watched uh, the show, The Chosen, they chose to highlight this specific instance. And it's the instance of these four friends allowing this or, or lowering this paralytic through the roof because he couldn't get in. And, and I've heard this message preached numerous times. And often when it's preached, the message is, uh, the application is, here's how to be a really good friend. <laughs> and, and I, you know, be, be one of those people. And I, I want those people in my life and I want to be one of those friends, but I don't think that that's the point of this message. And so I want to give us a bit of an introduction in what Jesus is doing. But in order to do that, we've got to back up a little bit to Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four gives us this indication that Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry. And Luke, as a physician, is probably one of the most detailed and chronological gospels that we have. He, he writes these things so that as he, in his own confession, that you would have an orderly account of what takes place. And so he's really laying out some very specific things. And so Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry, and he's actually beginning his earthly ministry in his own hometown. Goes into a synagogue in Nazareth and decides to preach. He unrolls the scroll, and the message that he preached is from Isaiah 61. And so here it is, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19 says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In verse 21, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this is why this is so critical. And I, I'm gonna try not to take too long on this, but I'm gonna geek out a little bit because I think that there's, there's just some crucial connections that we need to make. If our time frame's right historically, it's likely that Jesus was born during the Feast of Trumpets. And in the process of that, as he began to grow, there's a, there's a sense in the Old Testament, Leviticus 25, that they had a, a rhythm of sevens that were set up as the, uh, what they called sabbatical years. And so what that meant is that every seven years, they would allow the land to remain fallow and just put it at rest. And they would have a, a year of sabbatical rest for the land. And so in the process of those things, after seven years of sabbatical years, so after 49 years, the 50th year was called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee in the Old Testament was a year in which every single debt that was owed was pardoned. Every slave that was paying off a debt was freed. Everything, every piece of land that was whole, held on commission or trying to, uh, for someone to pay off those debts that they had owed or something that they had incurred, everything that they had done in the course of those 50 years in that generation and the 50th year would be utterly forgiven. It was like a complete and total cultural reset button. The interesting part, historically, and one of the connections that I want to make is Jesus rolls out this idea of Isaiah 61 and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, is he set up the reality that what he is doing in the context of these things is actually functioning and bringing in the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. Historically, and all of the Jewish writers that I encountered through the study of this passage, 
communicated very unequivocally that they cannot find any historical evidence that the actual nation of Israel ever celebrated the year of Jubilee. They never did it. <laughs> Why? Huge cost. Huge. Right? I mean, it's a big deal to be like, oh, you owe me all of this stuff, and on the 50th year, it's all forgiven. It's just, it, it, it's a huge expense. It's a huge act of faith. And then often, the reason why they didn't is because they were in exile. Because of their own sin and their defiance before a holy God, they were taken off in exile. And so when they're not in the land that God had promised them, they're not celebrating the year of Jubilee. And so all of these things continued to just progress down the road and never really fully celebrated it. It's interesting, the time frame here of what we're getting, if we're accurate in how the history unfolds itself, Jesus commissions his ministry sometime in the midst of that sabbatical year, the year of the Lord's favor. With what? His death and resurrection coming in the year of Jubilee. The intriguing part about that is what Jesus is saying is that the promise of the pardon and the freedom from captivity and all of the debts that had been incurred throughout all of human history and all of, lifetime, and all of the lifetime are met by Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. Like he is the full partner of all sin. He has completed the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee, and, and so you can sense that as the Jewish hearers would be hearing these things, they would be so absolutely amazed at the reality of what Jesus was actually saying that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And so he preaches that message, short message, shorter message than I've ever preached. And he says, it's fulfilled in your hearing. And then what does he do? What happens right after he preaches this message as the fulfillment of the promise of God's full and complete pardon. <laughs> he lives it out. He absolutely does the very thing that he's communicated. So when you look in Luke chapter four, verses 18 through 19, and it uses the term liberty or setting captives free, that word itself is actually a word that means pardon or forgiveness. So what he's saying is I have come to proclaim forgiveness for the captives, recovering of the sight to the blind, and set free or pardon those who are oppressed. There is just a reality of, of guilt and the uh, removal of that guilt and the debts that are owed that Jesus is the sole source of being able to do those things. And now he moves it out and his whole message and what he encounters in the gospel of Luke is to the poor. To all of those who are oppressed, like he begins the process of communicating the reality of those things. And so just quickly as he moves forward, he, he heals a man with a demon. And then he, it, it says in, in chapter four, verses 38, that he heals many and he preaches in synagogue. Then he calls some disciples. Then he heals a leper. All of these things capture the, the truth of what Jesus is doing. He's healing the sick, he's freeing captives, he's pardoning sin, and he's calling followers. Like that's the ministry of Jesus as Luke unfolds it for us. And then we get this encounter of this paralytic that's brought to Jesus in a very unique way. And so it's, it's highlighted in the scriptures as an important understanding of the scope and the potency of Jesus's ministry. 
And so here's what I want us to be very careful of. I'm going to answer the question for you this morning that's asked in this text. And the question is, who is this man? And, and I think the scriptures answer it very clearly in this text. The, the song that we're going to sing after this message is called, Who is This Man? And it will answer that question for you as well. But what I want to tell you is that that doesn't matter unless you answer the question for yourself. Like This is a a calling and, and even in some parts a reckoning of who we understand Jesus to be, not just a Jesus who, who touches that which is paralyzed or moves towards that which is messy, but the, the substance of this text addresses the very thing that you and I are walking through in our lives right now. Whether it's emotional paralysis of not being able to get over the pain of an emotional wound that absolutely festers in your heart. Or whether it's the paralysis of frustration and fear that have consumed all of your journey. Or the crippling reality of anxiety and uncertainty of the future. The message that Jesus is communicating this morning as we look at the truth of the paralytic addresses all of it. And so, if you will, look with me in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowds, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this one or who is this man? Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to this man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately. He rose up and before them and picked up and what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. You get this interchange, this experience, this story, this encounter with an individual and the, the basic, most simplistic reality of this individual is he's in a whole bunch of trouble and he can't help himself. He can't get to Jesus as he has no ability to walk because of physical paralysis. 
He has friends that are concerned about him and want to make sure that they take him to Jesus, who has and has had the ability to be healing so far. And so they've heard of his healing power, and they're willing to take this man who is paralyzed on a mat to Jesus. They get there, and they realize that the very thing that they've heard about Jesus, everybody else has too. So it's crowded. How do you get to Jesus when the crowds are in the way? Well, these friends find a way, and I think it's intriguing in the text, as they lower him down, he uses the plural. He says he saw their faith. Intriguing as you think about the scope of what's taking place, that somehow in some way their faith to bring this paralyzed man to Jesus was the very thing that God used, the raw material, to bring about forgiveness of sins and transformation of his status. Like, that's why I think often this text is preached about what it means to be a friend. In the most challenging parts of life, what do you do? How do you offer advice when people are suffering? Well, you bring them to Jesus. And you realize in the process of bringing them to Jesus, he's their only hope. And so there is some significance in that, but I still don't believe that that's the center point of this text. I think the center point of this text is around the question that the Pharisees ask. Who is this one who has the power to forgive sin? Let me ask it this way. Who is this man when I've made life-altering mistakes? Like just the, the scriptures don't tell us, this story shows up in Mark and Matthew as well, as to the reason the individual is paralyzed. We don't know. It could have been a stupid freak accident of just doing something foolish. It could have been a chronic condition. It could have been the sin of someone else that was perpetrated on him that allowed him to be paralyzed. We're not sure But his paralysis is the window in which we get a view of the most critical and important reality of of why Jesus came. It wasn't just to heal the sick and the infirmed. How do we know that? Because the the sick and the infirmed who were healed by Jesus are dead. (laughs) They didn't live forever. Like it was a temporary healing. The reality of their salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins still remains true. So Jesus addresses the primary problem in this individual's heart. This individual's situation is that the the paralysis is also a temporary thing. But the thing that he needs most of all is the understanding of the forgiving, rescuing grace of Christ. We look at this and we say to ourselves, all right, who is this man in the midst of life-altering mistakes. We've all had them in some way. Maybe it doesn't seem as significant. We've maybe had just a few little lies, maybe some small little deception, maybe hearts that are mildly judgmental, or we've found ourselves in the midst of challenging relationships or, or bitterness that's taken root inside of our hearts. And so we, we've, we tend to minimize the significance of what we're going through and think, well, it's just the small stuff. But At the end of the day, all of those things build and move themselves to places where we think about decisions and separating from people and catastrophic decisions that we make because all of these things built over time. And in the process of all of those things, I think that we've all found ourselves looking back on our journey and saying to ourselves, you know what? There have been some significant life-altering mistakes that I've made. Who is this man in the midst of those? Who is this man in the midst of the 
challenges that I face here and now. The chronic suffering, the frustration, the challenges, the life-consuming anxiety, those things that have power over me more than Christ has power over me. That's the space that Jesus is talking to us about his life-transforming, rescuing grace. And so in the process of those things, as the story unfolds, who is this man? We get this perspective that even as they've taken off this roof and made a skylight so that Jesus could, could see this guy and bring him down on this mat, he looks at him and he looks at his friends and says, because of your faith, man, your sins are forgiven. The text doesn't give us any indication that the paralyzed man had some level of accurate confessional prayer. (laughs) Did he say the right things? It doesn't even tell us that he said he was sorry for the mistakes that he had made. It's in that moment where the intrusion, the radical intrusion of God's grace is so absolutely life-altering that it consumes even the inability to speak or to pray It just moves to declare the goodness of God's work in the midst of a tragic circumstance. Who is this man in life-altering mistakes? Well, he's the man that he promised to be, to pardon the captives, to free the oppressed. Anyone ever feel oppressed by fear? Oppressed or captivated by emotional frustration and bitterness? Captivated by sin done to you or sin you've done? Certainly, we see our lives on the pages of this text. We relate with the reality of feeling like there is no option forward. My mom, uh, I remember when I was younger, had this uh, really beautiful string of pearls it was something that she never really wore. She's kind of a, a tomboy growing up. And so uh, it was only on fancy occasions that she would bring out these pearls and, and wear them. And in the process of that, I mean, these, these, these beautiful, shiny, white-looking things that were gorgeous and a, a, a view of, of beauty came from a reality that the only way that those pearls were made were because there was an irritant that made its way into an oyster or a mollusk and over the course of years began to be consumed and processed and changed and then made into this beautiful thing. But the only way that a pearl is made is if an irritant exists. Let me suggest to you this morning in the midst of this text that the paralysis that this gentleman had experienced This irritant, if you will, and that probably minimizes it, the struggle that he had faced was the very avenue for the glory of God to be revealed. Now, how does that sit on you? I'm gonna ask you this morning, and not necessarily as a form of response, but for you to ask yourself, in the midst of the very things that you're walking through, the, the irritants and the sufferings of life, is there a space where you and I would be willing to undermanage the outcome of those irritants and allow God to be the one that gets glorified from it? That the irritant itself is the very avenue of dependency upon Jesus? What if 
the very struggle you face, the very overwhelming thing is actually the very thing that brings you to the place where God makes beautiful what is broken. What if this man, who is the one who forgives sin and transforms human hearts, that he brings glory out of darkness, that he brings light and hope in the midst of the most difficult situations, that encountering this man, it was actually the irritant of your life that very brought you to that very place where you realized you couldn't manage your life. <laughs> you needed someone else. You needed Jesus. So who is this man when we make life-altering mistakes? I think the second question that faces us is who is this man when life-altering circumstances intrude into our life? So when we've made mistakes, certainly we think about how grace is sufficient for those moments and not just for salvation, but the ongoing rescuing that we need from Jesus and the most challenging things and the mistakes that we've made owning our part and recognizing the goodness of God's rescuing grace in the moment. But when life-altering circumstances exist that you have no control over, this man is paralyzed. And thank God he has four friends. Otherwise, there is no way he would have an audience with Jesus. I want to ask you, when life-altering circumstances intrude into your life or intrude in the life of those you love, when you think about those who are going through deep, dark valleys of life, is our first response to think about ways in which we can make their suffering easier? <laughs> Not much you can do with a paralytic, but maybe give him a pillow so he's more comfortable, unless you bring him to Jesus. You see, there's, there's two things that are abundantly clear in this text. Is that one, we're faced with the reality that the paralytic had no ability to do what he needed to do to find change and hope, but he had people that were willing to take him to Jesus. But that we are both the paralytic and the friend at the same time. We, we need to answer that question for our own souls. Who is this man that heals and forgives sin? Who is this man that transforms human hearts? See, the, the healing of this paralytic is secondary to the reality of the emotional heart transformation that exists. And the text tells us that. I'm not just making that up. He says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin on earth. I tell this man, take up his bed and walk. The reason why the paralytic is healed physically is so that everyone around him will know that the power to forgive sin rests in Christ himself because he is God in the flesh. This is an amazing story of a reality of what it means to experience life-transforming power first emotionally and spiritually and then realizing that physically so that all of those around will know that Jesus is who he said he was. Who is this man when life-altering circumstances intrude into your life? I love that as he hears and thinks about the Pharisees and what they're thinking, it, it predominates the next question that is so absolutely critical that we have to face. And I think we get it through the window of the religious people of the time. Who is this man when the message challenges my own self-righteousness? Who is this man when I wanna look at 
Jesus from afar and evaluate his significance in my life based on what I need, not based on who he is. <laughs> There's no amens there, and that's okay. Let me see if I can say it a different way. I'm concerned that many, and maybe even myself included, who are walking and seeking to honor Christ and want to be faithful to him, treat Christ more as a novelty than a savior. That he's this God on the shelf when life is tough. We pray and we seek things from him when things are, and he wants to hear from us and he's gracious and rescuing in those moments. But the day-to-day life reality of how God is life-changing and altering how we see and how we view all of these things, when, we th- when things are going okay or we feel like we can manage it ourselves, we can, we can create a distance between us and Christ and say, you know, I, I got this. Thanks for your help. I'm all good. And we we place Christ on the shelf and treat him as a a novelty. So church becomes a a novelty of something that we should do on Sunday mornings rather than that which propels us to deeper intimacy with Christ throughout the rest of the week. Like we come together to commune as a body of believers, to grow, to be refreshed, to encounter Jesus again, to know that our needs and our challenges are met by the sovereign providential rescuing grace of Jesus. And then we're sent back out into the world, not so that we can do what we've always done, but so that the very reality of who Jesus is, is what we're taking to the world around us. There are millions of people who are suffering as the paralytic suffered and has no one to take them to Jesus. Save you. You know people and understand and experience. You've experienced the transforming grace of Jesus. You know what it means to hurt and feel fearful and overwhelmed with life. And you know how Jesus has met you and continues to meet you. Is the greatest invitation in all of the world to say, I don't know how to fix the challenges that you're facing, but I want to bring you to someone who does. (laughs) The power of Jesus is still at work in our day and age. And the greatest challenge in all of the world is not the suffering and the sickness that we see in a broken world. It's the fact that sin has infested our hearts and convinced us that we don't need Christ. That's the greatest thing that we face. It's not about whether or not we change the political atmosphere of our culture or that our finances are better or that the problems that we're struggling with are solved. It's that sin is so catastrophically embedded in our experience that we daily need the rescuing, transforming power of grace to change us into his likeness and to know that our sins are forgiven and to leave different. That's what happens to everyone in the scriptures not everyone, the majority of people as we walk through these stories who have encountered Jesus, they encounter Jesus and become changed. Except when self-righteousness is more valuable than God's righteousness. You see, religious tradition and religion itself can really get in the way of understanding who Christ truly is. The story unfolds or cascades into this unique ending that I think is significant. And I'll finish with this. Verse 25, after he takes up his bed, he said, immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. Amazement seized them all. And they were filled with awe. Sorry, amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe. 
saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And just ask, when was the last time you saw something extraordinary? (laughs) And maybe for some, we would hearken back to moments of God meeting us in special ways or meeting those who we loved. I'm going to ask you today, if you would be so convinced that your internal transformation through the gift of faith that God has given you and that you've been adopted into the family of God through the pursuit of the God of the universe in your life to draw you near to himself is extraordinary. The greatest miracle of all of scripture is not raising the dead or healing a paralytic. It's the forgiveness of sin and the invitation of intimacy with Jesus Christ of which you have. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, I wonder what it would feel like for us to leave this morning saying, I've seen something extraordinary. Marriages healed because there's humility in seeking the face of God over and above selfish desires. I've seen extraordinary things as those who were far off been brought near. That there's been healing and brokenness and intimacy afforded and those struggles maybe don't fully go away. But, but I've been given Jesus. There's nothing greater. Who is this man? To you. Let's pray.